When I was a university student, I spent a couple of summers working at a remote backpacking camp in the Rocky Mountains in South Central Montana. That time and that place remain particularly vivid in my memory. The sights and sounds and smells are easy to recall, always like I was just there yesterday. Maybe you have a place and a time like that in your life too. One of those smells came back to me this week. It's the smell of a Thanksgiving dinner. I apologize for the very American reference here. Thanksgiving is, of course, a North American holiday that comes with a very particular meal. It varies regionally, but usually at the center, there's a roast turkey. It's not a meal that you whip up easily. Think of a big holiday dinner in your own culture maybe for Christmas or Easter. Something elaborate and special and a whole lot of work. Something most families would not do more than once a year. That's what Thanksgiving dinner is. And at the camp where I worked, we made it every week. The summer was divided into week-long sessions. Groups of kids would come for five or six days and every week ended with a Thanksgiving meal. And not like a simple pared-down version, either. No, it was the works. Turkey, mashed potatoes, stuffing, gravy, green beans, fresh biscuits. Every single week ended with a feast. I can assure you this is not typical summer camp fare in the U.S. Hot dogs and potato chips would be a whole lot more common. And there are any number of reasons not to cook this particular meal every week all summer. To begin with, it was an enormous amount of work. There were a hundred or so mouths to feed each time, so the quantities were significant. Five or six large turkeys, enormous cauldrons of potatoes, vats of gravy. It took the cooks the better part of the day to prepare every time. It also turned the kitchen into an unholy mess. It turns out that you cannot cook six large turkeys without grease ending up everywhere. That afternoon each week, you could slide across the kitchen floor like it was an ice skating rink. And Thanksgiving isn't even a summer holiday. It's an autumn one, a once-a-year celebration that is so tied to that time of year. There were lots of good reasons not to cook this particular meal, lots of reasons to do something simpler and easier. It was so much more than was needed. But Bob Quam, who was the director of the camp for decades, insisted on it. He insisted on the kids ending their stay this way, with something elaborate and lavish and extravagant. The hikers would tromp into camp after a week of sleeping in the backcountry and eating some stale bread and pasta, and the smell of roast turkey and fresh bread would welcome them back. That smell came back to me, reading our lesson from John's Gospel this week, prompted by the smell of another lavish and extravagant offering. A few words about our context for the story today. The entire chapter that comes before this reading is concerned with the raising of Lazarus. It's a beautiful story that gives a small window into what was clearly a deep friendship between Jesus and a small family living in the village of Bethany. 
Three siblings, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus are there. And when Lazarus becomes sick, the sisters quickly send a note to Jesus saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. Jesus is delayed in coming. Lazarus dies in the meantime. And the sisters know Jesus well enough to confront him when he finally does arrive, saying, if you'd been here, our brother would not have died. Jesus weeps with them in their grief and finally calls his friend Lazarus out of the tomb, out from death into life once again. So that tender story is one bit of the context for our reading today. The other is that the long simmering conflict between Jesus and the religious authorities is now finally at a boiling point. When Jesus raised somebody from the dead, when he showed that even death was no match for the life that was present in him, the authorities recognized finally just how profoundly he could disturb the order they depended on. And they finally decided it was time to take action. From that day on, they planned to put him to death, John tells us. All of that is hanging in the air when Jesus' friends in Bethany decide to give a dinner for him. All of that wonder and gratitude for what he has just done, and all of that uncertainty and fear for what may soon be coming. Lazarus himself is there, the guy who only last week was cold in the tomb, now eating at the table with his family and friends. It's a charged scene, to say the least. And in the middle of the meal, Mary gets up, goes to her room, and comes back with a bottle. Without a word, she kneels at Jesus' feet, opens that bottle, and begins to pour. All at once, a sharp scent, something like mint and ginseng, fills the house, and Mary begins to wipe Jesus' feet with her hair. So you might be thinking, huh, I've never seen anybody do that, but... Maybe that was a normal thing to do in that time and culture. Maybe that was a usual way of showing hospitality. But no, it wasn't. Very little in what Mary does here is usual. It was common to wash the feet of guests at your home for a meal. But you wash them with water, not with perfume that was typically used to prepare bodies for burial. It was common to wipe someone's feet after you wash them, but with a cloth, certainly not with your hair. It was common to anoint someone. The Bible has lots of stories of kings or other leaders being anointed and blessed for the work that was ahead of them, but you anointed their heads, not their feet. And if you did anoint someone with oil or perfume, you used just a little bit, not a pound. Mary's action here is strange in many ways. It's sort of a mix of symbols and customs. And maybe more than anything, it is strange in its extravagance. The perfume that she used was costly, worth maybe a year's wages for a day laborer at that time. And to see her acting with such vulnerability had to be uncomfortable for those watching. Did she do this all in gratitude for what Jesus had just done? or in anticipation for his death that now seemed all but unavoidable? Almost certainly both. Either way, her offering was incredibly lavish, so much more than was needed. Couldn't she just have said thank you, made a card, baked a cake, 
In the stunned silence that must have followed, Judas speaks up to object. Couldn't this perfume have been sold and the money given to the poor? We're told he has other motives, but I could sort of imagine any of the other disciples, even perfectly well-meaning ones, similarly struggling to understand what she has done. Shouldn't we be more careful than this? Shouldn't we turn away from that kind of extravagance? Was all that really necessary? There were lots of reasons for Mary not to do what she did at the dinner table that evening. But Jesus is interested in none of them. Leave her alone, he says. She bought it so that she might keep it for the day of my burial. You always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. You have daily opportunities to serve and care for the poor, and you must certainly take them. Today you have the opportunity to care for me. Mary understands. Leave her alone. Mary understands a lot here. She understands what generosity looks like. She understands what gratitude looks like. She understands that Jesus will not be with them much longer. And even more, I think she understands that the love God has for us is like that perfume. Lavish, fragrant, extravagant, more than enough. Look back on Jesus' ministry, and that's what it has always looked like. It began with a wedding, after all, and water turned to ridiculous quantities of well-aged wine. It continued with an unexpected feast for thousands on a hillside, with living water that never runs dry, with living bread that satisfies forever, with room for all in God's home, with grace upon grace, more than enough. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly, Jesus said. That's a pretty good summary of his whole ministry because that's what he has always offered, abundant life, life full to the brim. That's what life in his company is like. And Mary reflects that back to him in her offering. She cares for him with something of the extravagant love with which he cares for us. The director at that camp that I worked at definitely understood the extravagance of God's love. And I am sure that's why he insisted on all of those Thanksgiving dinners, troublesome and impractical though they were. He wanted each group that came through to have that experience, to be guests at a feast that was so much more than was needed to find themselves the recipients of a gift of lavish hospitality, to be surprised again by grace. Friends, that's what the love of God is like. It is being welcomed to an abundant feast. It is being anointed with costly mercy. It's being surrounded with the fragrance of joy. It's being embraced with strong and gentle care. It is more than enough. Mary understands, and she reminds us today. She reminds us also of the lengths to which that love will go. The little village of Bethany is just outside Jerusalem, and the very next day, Jesus will be on his way there one last time, walking the way of love. In the days that follow, he will keep walking that path, 
like he always did and always will, no matter the opposition, all the way to the cross. Thanks be to God. Amen.